0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. On January 19th, 1863, when the specter of the great famine still loomed large over the land of Ireland, Alexander Irvine was born in dire poverty in the town of Antrim, which is now in Northern Ireland. His parents had broken with convention and had done the unthinkable in Ireland. They had entered into a mixed marriage. Anna, his mother, was a Catholic, and Jimmy, his father, was a literate, Protestant shoemaker. The social stigma of the relationship forced them to leave their native village to seek a more anonymous existence, away from their respective families and from the people among whom they had been raised. Their subsequent life together was a story of penury and hunger, an oppressive and restless struggle for survival. But through it all, they had one invaluable gift, a deep love for one another and for the children born of that love. And the story of that love was written by Alexander Irvine, who became actually a minister of the gospel. And it's recorded in a wee book entitled, My Lady of the Chimney Corner. Engraved on Anna's and Jamie's headstones are three words. Love is enough. Love is enough. Words that point us to the Apostles' message here in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. And these words I want you to see, first of all, the instruction that should arrest us, and then the illustration which should assist us. And finally, the identification, which should amaze us. First of all then, the the instruction, which should arrest us. Those opening words of the fifth chapter, therefore, be imitators of God. Now, in other parts of the New Testament, we hear the call of Paul for other believers to to follow him. Or for other believers to follow other believers, or to become followers of other churches. But here, Paul goes beyond that. These believers in Ephesus are to be followers Of God and this is unique it is the only time in the New Testament where the writer directs and appeals to and instructs his readers to follow God so what does he mean well the term that Paul uses the word follow is, as you have it in your ESV, the word imitate. But it's also our word mimic, or simply our word copy. What does it mean to imitate? What does it mean to mimic? What does it mean to to copy? Well, many, and I should say again, many years ago when I was a child at school, we were taught how to hold our pencils properly and how to write properly. We were given what were called copy books. Some of you looking around here, maybe of my generation, might recall those books. They were books that had letters and words perfectly formed and written on a top line. And as a student, our task was to copy that form and that lettering on a bottom or underneath line. By studying the perfect lettering, we would then seek to reproduce them ourselves, in our copy book. And that's basically what Paul is telling us what to do here. To study God. To focus on God. To learn of Him. To lean on Him with the goal of copying Him. That the life of the saint is to imitate, and to mimic, and to live a life which is a copy of our Saviours. The words of John in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. We are to be godly, for we are following God. And one compels and causes the other. And this, of course, was the very teaching of Jesus himself. The words of Matthew 5, verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven, is perfect. And Jesus told his followers that they are to love their enemies and pray for their persecutors so that they might become sons of the heavenly Father. The point being made, like Father, like Son. And furthermore, Jesus reminded his disciples that God sends the sunshine on the evil and the good alike, and that he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So that the application is simply that Jesus saw the Father as our model, as our example, the very one we are to mimic and imitate and copy. And that's the point that Paul is simply making here. However, the question surely arises, how can the created imitate and mimic and copy the Creator? Well, there are those attributes which do belong to God alone. They are, we might say, majestic in their nature. I'm thinking of His glory, His eternity, His omnipotence, His omnipresence, His omniscience. But then there are those attributes of God, those characteristics of God, which we are to copy. They are what the theologian would call those attributes that can be communicated. Those that are moral in their nature. Such as his holiness. Be ye holy as I am holy. In his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his mercy, his faithfulness. Even those qualities that that Paul points to at the conclusion of his fourth chapter here. Look with me at the words of Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. He writes to the saints and he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And you see, it is in light of what he writes in verse 32, forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven you, that he goes on to pen, verse 1 of chapter 5, be ye Followers, imitators of God. It is a humbling exhortation. For it reminds us, does it not, of man's chief end. Which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That we are not here to draw attention to ourselves but to God, who is our Father. And so we are to copy, we are to demonstrate, we are to display those attributes and characteristics which belong to God. And what is the stream that flows through such attributes? I think the Apostle Paul answers the question... In 1 Corinthians 13, where he demonstrates true love. And thus here in the passage before us, to follow God, to imitate God, to mimic God, to copy God is, as he says in verse 2, to walk in love. To walk in love. That what he says in verse 1, is paralleled and explained and clarified here in verse 2 and so from the instruction which should arrest us i want you to notice the introduction or rather the illustration which should assist us what is the illustration verse 2 walk in love as Christ loved us. We are to be like God. And God is love. Therefore the great characteristic of our life is surely to be love. To walk in love. That is to proceed with our life. A life characterized and marked by love. It is to persist in love. It is to progress in love. It is to promote love. And what does that love look like? Well, Paul illustrates the point by relating to us the love of Christ to us. The second part of verse 2. And notice that he draws our attention to three elements here. And I'm I'm, I'm simply going to underline what our pastor said at the communion table. Because what do we find in this portion? Paul says the same thing as Peter. Here is the element of surrender. Christ has loved us, says Paul, and has given himself for us. Christ loved us. It rolls off our tongue very quickly, doesn't it, and very easily. But is it not amazing? Is it not wonderful? That there is nothing in us or about us or concerning us that attracts Christ's love. We are rebels and sinners, disobedient and indifferent, idolaters and transgressors. We lived without God. We spoke against God. We despised and rejected God. But God, in his great love for us, He gave himself to that old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And within this context of surrender, we notice two two great truths the voluntary nature of Christ's crucifixion, that he wasn't trapped, he wasn't cornered, he wasn't captured. But he gave himself up. He laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. The voluntary nature of it. And in addition, the very value of this offering. He gave himself, not another. The Father's beloved Son, the Lamb of God, the one before whom seraphim veileth their faces and feet. The sinless, spotless Son of God deliberately, willingly, actively give Himself up in love, in full and glad surrender. The element of surrender. But notice also love's element of sacrifice. For Paul draws our attention to the fact that it was an offering. And sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. And there are four basic features regarding a sacrifice. Remember from your Old Testament it, it had to be a spotless victim. There had to be the imputation of sin. There had to be the slaughter of the victim. There had to be the sprinkling of blood. The shedding of blood, the sign of life violently taken in death. The wrath of God satisfied. For what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 5.2 is that Christ in love fully satisfied all the demands of God's law. By the offering up of himself as a sacrifice to God, he opened heaven's door to let us in. The love of surrender and the love of sacrifice And don't miss it, the love of substitution. For notice the two little words that you find here. Paul speaks of Christ's sacrifice for us. For us. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Christ gave himself, not simply, you see, for the benefit of others, but in the room of others, in the place of others, in the stead of others. The poor and the guilty and the ungrateful murderers, such as we are. He became sin, who knew no sin. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitution. Ossie Spruill says, take away the substitution. And you take away the grace of God. What was Paul's testimony? Christ loved me. And gave himself for me. Here is love. He gave. It was voluntary. He gave himself. It was valuable. He gave himself for us. It was vicarious. What love is this? The love of God. So deep, so rich, so free. The love that his loved ones know. And therefore, are to show, to mimic, to imitate, to copy. A love that's selfless, sensitive, sympathetic, sacrificial, steadfast, sure, submissive, and shares. My dear friends, it is a love that, that tends the sick. That brings rest to the weary. That soothes those who are suffering. That pities the afflicted. That shields the joyous. That goes with the gospel. That takes up the cross. And fears God. Be ye followers of God. That's the instruction that should arrest us. Walk in love even as Christ loved us. That's the illustration that should assist us. For love is simply being like Jesus. It's not sentimentality. It is obedience and observance. But how can God, this great and mighty God, expect that love which belongs to Him? How can He expect that love should be shown? and displayed by the likes of us. Why are we to walk in love? Because of who we are and what we are. And what are we, my brother and sister in Christ this morning? What are we? You go back to verse 1 again of Ephesians 5. We're the dearly loved children of God. And so finally, the identification that should amaze us. Why does God expect His children to be like Him? Because children resemble their parents. And what is true in the physical arena is to be true in the spiritual arena. You can tell that a person has God as their father by the righteous, holy, loving life they live. Because holiness and righteousness and love is a family trait. It's a family trait. It comes from God. How does Paul identify the people of God here? As dear children. Dearly loved children. My dear friends, this is our status. We have been adopted into the family of God. The theologian John Murray once put it that, Adoption is the apex, the summit, the highest point of redemptive grace and privilege. You see, God God could have forgiven our sins and and kept us at a distance from himself. He could have called us and made us to be his, his servants. But that's not what God has done. He has saved us. Not merely to be his servants. Not even to be citizens in his kingdom. No, no. To appreciate it all. We hear again the words of John. This time from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold what what manner of love. The Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. And such we are. Paul writes, we imitate God. In what way? As dearly loved children. We imitate God because we are intimate with God. He is our Father, and we're His dearly beloved children. We stand not only in a simple, or rather in a a legal relationship due to justification, but we also stand in a loving relationship due to adoption. And that love for us shown at Calvary keeps on keeping on. For nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Now, do we realize this? Does it amaze us? You know, do we live in light of this that that, that God is vitally interested in us? He has set his love upon us. He is aware of our going out and our, our coming in, that we're dear to his heart, that he persistently, unwaveringly has an intense personal interest in us. For what did the Old Testament prophet say? I will love them freely, says the Lord. And Campbell Morgan Commenting on that, put it this way, he says, reverently, let me put it. God says, I will love them because I cannot help loving them. I will love them because I cannot help loving them. He loves them with his own love. No external pressure. No external influence. It is his love. And so because we are so deeply loved by God, we are to love like him. And because we are so freely loved by God, then surely, surely our greatest desire is to love like him. Dearly loved children, that's our status. And what's the sign of that? What's the demonstration of that? What's the proof of that? We walk in love as Christ loved us. And what's that love again? Well I'm sure you've been to a marriage service, you've been to a wedding And what is one of the most popular pieces of the Bible read at a wedding ceremony? 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. But you know, 1 Corinthians 13 was not written just for wedding services, it was written for church members. It was written for church members who th- thought that, or who think that they know better than everybody else, for the church member who demands it to be done his way or no way, for those who are within the church who would try to dictate or dominate rather than serve. But no, 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 the message of First Corinthians is for Christians, my friend, it is for you today as it is for me today. And it's not soft and lovely and tender. Read 1 Corinthians 13, my friends. It's terrifying. Take a little test. Read 1 Corinthians 13. And where it speaks of love, put Jesus' name there particularly from verses 4 to 7 and see the love of Jesus. And then read those verses again and where it says love or it, put your own name there. For example, Brian suffers long. Brian is kind. Brian envies not. I tell you, friends, you haven't read too much before you stop reading it because you just see that that's not true. 1 Corinthians 13. And then add to that Matthew 5. Because love is not fuzzy feeling. Love is about something else. Love knows what it is to be poor in spirit. Love knows what it is to mourn over sin. Love knows what it is to to be meek and to show mercy. You put those two passages together, Corinthians and Matthew, and they exemplified what we are called to be as the children of God, and they expose how far short we fall. They search us, and they show us our great need of God, who is love. And that love, true love, biblical love, which honors God, has, as I draw to a close, three significant features. Have you ever noticed that true love, biblical love, is active? Active. How does John put it? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And what does our text say? Christ loved us. And he did something about it. He acted, he came, and he gave himself for us because true love acts. And then B, it's bestowed. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. God has put His love in us. He has injected His love within us. Romans 5 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And oh, how wonderful it is to know these truths, my friend, that God is the spring and source of love. Because if you're anything like I am, you know that. Our love is so weak and faint. Sometimes you get up in the morning and your heart's so cold and so indifferent. You pick up your hymn book to sing a hymn and it speaks of the hymn writer loving God and you say, bless you my dear friend, but that's not true of me. And what do we do? Seek him for it. The old Puritans would say, sue him for it. Ask Him for it. Pray for it. There's Paul here for the Ephesians chapter 3. That they might know the height, the depth, the breadth, and length of God's love and be amazed at it. It's active, it's bestowed, and it constrains. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, The love of God constrains us. And wasn't that demonstrated by the Saviour? That word that we read as we go through the Gospels. Where Jesus says to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. There is a must about it. I must because love constrains. So that if the need should ever arise, there will be no hesitation to true love. Imitate God by walking in love. So what does it all come down to? What does it all come down to? Surely this, my dear Christian brother and sister, be what you are. Be what you are. And what are you? Dearly, loved children of God. The God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is enough. But let me add this, love is also essential, love is also essential, for you see, about 30 years after this word of instruction and exhortation to the Ephesians, the Lord did an audit on that church. And what did he find? What did he record? He commended them for their, their activity. He commended them for their durability. He commended them for their orthodoxy. He commended them for their theology. He commended them for their purity. But one thing you lack. What do they lack? The main thing. The main thing. They'd taken their eyes off the main thing. I have this against you. You have left your first love. Revelation 2.4 You have left your first love. And so they faced the prospect of being... Unchurch. Um, Don't misunderstand me, but you can have all the orthodoxy in the world, but without love, there'll only come darkness and death to your heart and to your church. Walk in love, even as Christ loved us. You think about that. Let's pray. O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar, of my heart, and there let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze, and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Amen.